regenerative agriculture is the next evolution. And it is, it really does embody the idea that we need to regenerate these degraded systems and re-enliven them, heal them, and rebuild the, the resiliency that we know we need going into, you know, the next decade of farming. Once you're able to transition into a regenerative system, it's a lot less input costs because the biology and the diversity is providing a lot of uh, preventative type medicine, let's say. You know, less input is required. If you've got excellent biological diversity, it can fix nitrogen for you. So improving the nutrients cycling in that soil. As you pull down more carbon and you put more carbon in the soil, you improve your water holding capacity. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Did you ever feel like you needed to check with an expert about something? Well, I right now I'm thinking I need some help on environmental literacy. And thank goodness I've got a professor of environmental literacy. And she's going to have to explain that. Plus, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics that I don't explain very well myself, and that's regenerative agriculture. So where better to go than to the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems at at Cal State Chico and uh, Dr. Cindy Daly. Cindy, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity to spread the word. Yeah, we'll spread the word, but let's help me get back to where that word started. Because, okay. you know, I scratch my head every once in a while. I think, oh, no, wait a minute. This all makes sense every time I hear these stories about regenerative agriculture. But I seem to recall a time when nobody said anything about regenerative agriculture. Maybe I was just absent that day. But, you know, it's um, I, I just wondered, when did you start hearing or maybe spreading the word about that term of, of regeneration or regenerative agriculture? Right. Well, we started using that vocabulary when it was really picked up by the farming community. There, you know, there's a, a group of growers that um, that that I I think really lifted that that terminology and that word, and and put it to use in in many ways, and um, in you know in 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 their outreach and in their field days and and really in their trainings and support uh, to other farmers. So we picked it up really from those kinds of activities. We've been involved in uh, sustainable. Um, arena and ecological farming um, since uh, 2005, kind of in that that era, and uh, interacting with a variety of different growers that um, in those days really identified more as, uh, you know, an ecological um, farming entity. Um, organic, some of the growers that we were working with were organic. And <clears throat> I think Robert Rodale is actually credited with you know, that, that particular term, but, you know, that dates back to the 1940s when that was first, uh, you know, put to, put to print. Um, and then I think the farming community kind of picked it up from there. And, and it's really been a grassroots effort from the farming community, I think more than anything else. 
Uh, we began this initiative in regenerative agriculture when we were approached with uh, a group of growers uh, that were most interested in, in seeing this ecological farming movement uh, elevate beyond the organic community and into uh, all of production agriculture. And we began the Regenerative Ag Initiative back in 2016. Um, that was when I was reintroduced to Tim LaSalle. And Tim had been talking about regenerative agriculture, you know, even back in that 2005 timeline um, when he was the CEO of Rodale Institute. And at that point in time, uh, you know, I had um, I did a pilgrimage back <laughs> to the yeah. East Coast. And, and met, you know, Tim there at that time when he was CEO. And, you know, he did talk about regenerative agriculture. I really didn't necessarily, uh, you know, begin talking about it in that way. But, uh, you know, he had picked it up from the Robert Rodales and then um, and, and really tried to align it more so with the organic community. And it really hasn't really taken flight until, you know, more recently. And I would say within the last, you know, 15 years, I've I, I just see it a lot more often, and people tend to discern it as the next evolution in sustainable ag. So sustainability was really the mantra for the longest time for ecological farming, but it became obvious that we don't necessarily want to sustain a, a degraded system, and we do have a lot of uh, you know soil and water issues and air quality issues that you know we need to resolve, and so sustaining that kind of a system doesn't seem to make sense. And um, in many respects, sustainability is a term that that was you know worn out. I, I think it may have been you know utilized in some scenarios to describe things that probably were not sustainable. Uh, so regenerative um, agriculture is the next evolution of that, and it is. Uh, it, it really does embody the idea that we need to regenerate these degraded systems and re-enliven them, heal them, um, and, and, and rebuild the, the resiliency that we know we need going into, you know, the next decade of, of farming and beyond. Well, that's, a, that's a really good explanation. And I guess if I go way back, you could go way, way back uh, and you'd find, you know, conservation programs were starting to head these directions and taking care of the land. And, 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 you know, those got into the farm bills and what in back way back in, you know, Roosevelt days almost. And, and then you know, kept getting improved on improved on. And then at some point in time, you know, sustainability started getting on the scene. Certainly organic was becoming well more known and then sustainability. And then that conversation, what you alluded to people saying, wait a minute, sustainability seems to suggest just by definition that something's able to not further degrade. It's kind of like you hold it wherever it is. You don't want it to get any worse. But mm -hmm. this language that you're referring to coming from Rodale and, and you folks, too, is that, you know, we can make things better. We can heal the earth. We can not only just keep it from getting any worse, you can get it back to as good as it could be. And even maybe in some cases better than ever. Not many things you could say that about. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. we do get that. The, the soil is is. It is a situation that, that you can recover. The The soil can heal itself if it's managed appropriately. I think a lot of growers don't recognize the impact that, you know, they might have on the soil, you know, based on their production practices and, and the management is everything. 
to manage it in order to enliven you know the biology and and to recreate soil tilth and to rebuild the carbon stores that that, that were once there and are now gone um, and we we fill that uh, that carbon tank let's say uh, we, we can really make some real headway uh, you know not only with uh, longevity and resiliency in the farming sector but also with respect uh, you know to climate and drawing down some of that atmospheric CO2 that doesn't belong up there. Um, we can um, work to sequester that carbon and put it back in the soil where it belongs. You know, that's, that's just, all, again, ex excellent points. And and the thing I, one of the things I wonder about, I mean, you, you look at the earth, there's um, some small percentage of the surface of the earth that's actually land that you're able to farm. I mean, we've got deserts that might be able to be improved and so forth. but can you take a regenerative approach and apply it almost anywhere, whether you're a long, a large farm in, you know, in Illinois or a range in Wyoming or a big garden in Sacramento? I mean, can can you approach any place that grows something with a regenerative point of view and a regenerative philosophy? Absolutely. Man, that's that's the beauty um, of it. it. It does apply to all cropping systems. It does apply to all regions, ecoregions, all soil types. It, it really comes down to working toward those five basic soil health principles. And they've been very widely published, um, you know, throughout NRCS and, and beyond. Um, you know, some people have um, added to that and, you know, agree that uh, context is also a, 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 an important component um, of these five soil health principles. But, you know, basically, let's keep a living root in the soil for as long as possible. Let's build as much biological diversity. Let's keep the soil covered um, as much as possible. Minimize soil disturbance. Um, reintroduce livestock when and where possible. You know that tends to be a real stickler uh, for a lot of growers, especially out here in 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 the West. Um, you know where you know livestock is just not as prevalent as it is in the Midwest and in other places. So, you know, bringing livestock back into our cropping systems is 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 really a foreign concept and not one that's very well received, uh, really from uh, you know our, our 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 food safety folks, our agencies that are out there, FSIS, that, that um, are concerned about uh, food safety. Um, they are particularly concerned about uh, integrating livestock into, let's say, you know, vegetable, market vegetable or uh, commercial vegetable operations, or even into orchard systems, you know, where they might be grazing off a cover crop. That's a that's a great concern. So if uh, if that is something that you're trying to do to really comply or to support those five soil health principles by adding livestock into that system, you might get some fallout from your processor who is worried about um, food safety issues. You know, are those animals shedding salmonella, listeria, E. coli? You know, those are the kinds of things that uh, we, we do need to be cognizant of and um, and and make sure that we comply with the food safety regulations. Say it's just somebody that has a garden, you know, and, and in fact, I volunteered to help uh, in an urban garden this last weekend, and it was more work than I'm used to doing, but I I used something called a broad fork to be able to yeah. lift up. And, and so we're helping prepare the, the rows, and it occurred to me that I was probably helping a, a lot of carbon escape into the atmosphere. So even at 
I was asking somebody, I, I think I was just trying to get out of doing such hard work. But again, if you're looking at a small plot, like like even an urban garden, uh, it fits. There's ways you can look at your approach and what you're doing in that kind of a situation where you're, you know, you're you are going to be doing a lot of hand cultivation, too. But yeah, can you likely. Right, right. Likely a lot of these, you know, market gardens or backyard gardens. Uh, yeah. Minimizing, you know, tillage is uh, going to be a little more difficult in those kinds of situations. You tend to use that, you know, tillage for weed control. Um I guess the alternative to that is using some you know, pretty significant mulch, and in some cases, you know, folks are using compost as as a way to uh, you know outcompete weeds. Um, you know, using known uh, multi-species cover crop to outcompete weeds in many cases, so that they can condition that soil before they come in and uh, and start planting vegetables and that type of thing. So it's uh, you can apply these these principles to, you know to any scenario, and you know clearly you know in um, in, in any of these gardens, that does make sense. Uh, the goal is to keep uh, things covered and, you know, to keep leaving roots in the soil to, you know, if you're rotating between, um, you know, fall and, and summer vegetables in that scenario, you know, work in a, a, a multi-species cover crop. And that does tend to help, you know, break up pest cycles and uh, recondition the soil, making it ready for the next uh, what we call cash crop or, you know, for, for the next vegetable rotation that uh, you're interested in growing. I, you can definitely apply these principles in that way. Folks in the, in the gardening areas often have livestock um, integrated. You could run sheep over the, the residue. So that's uh, fairly common. Uh, but uh, again, FSMA, uh, the food safety uh, regulations would dictate that there needs to be 120 days uh, between the last day you grazed and harvest of any other vegetables. So you do need to be aware of that. And, you know, the idea is to stay away from any kind of uh, foodborne type or pathogen that might be shed by the livestock. I will point out that there hasn't been enough research along that line to know, you know, exactly, you know, what the risks um, are, especially with animals, ruminant animals off grass that are grazing, you know, lush pastures or grass or forages, you know, tend to shed a lot less. Um, you know, they, all of us have E. coli and that type of thing, the non-pathogenic type. Um, and it's been fairly well established that it, the diet does tend to dictate that. Animals on a grain diet tend to shed more of those kinds of pathogens than ruminants that are on a, a grass-based, forage-based um, type diet. Uh, but um, unfortunately, you know, our government doesn't discern um, that kind of thing. So that isn't acceptable where food safety regulations are concerned. You know, Cindy, I not too long ago, maybe it was a couple of years ago, I had a guest who was, um, it was organic farming, a small farm out in the, in Wyoming and kind of desert and sent me a picture and the soil was all like dark and improved in the area where their garden was. And right next to it was actual desert. I mean, it was just stark looking at the, even the, the different color of the, of the soil that was the rich and dark and, and they were putting, had been putting compost into, into they, that soil and they were turning, they were turning desert into really productive land. Do you mm -hmm. see it done on a larger scale? 
Oh, absolutely. I know when you uh, when you talk about desert, I also I, I think of sand. And it, we're down in the Palo Verde Valley um, working on a, um, an area in in Blythe, California. Um, this happens to be owned and operated by Heyday Farms. Um, and in that, their soils heavy sand, a lot of sand, and you know, so that's very very low um, EC soils. So it tends to um, you know, not have a lot of organic matter uh, associated. And we were able to turn even that kind of soil around in two years with some pretty intensive, uh, you know, multi-species cover and 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 reduced disturbance. So we seeded that cover with a no-till drill. And when we came back in with another cover crop, we didn't disturb the soil at all. And in two years, we changed the soil biology enough that we started to accumulate carbon um, in that third year. So that was pretty significant turnaround in some pretty bad soil, (laughs) some pretty awful soil. You know, it, when you when you start talking about this, and I think about the entire country, you know, I mentioned deserts and small, you know, gardens and urban farms and and so forth, but we have huge areas that are the you know wheat fields across the high plains and corn soybeans, the some that are just strictly corn soybeans through much of what's called the Corn Belt, certainly Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and so forth. What what has your experience been in those areas or what's the feedback on people that are trying to be regenerative in places that have had to go to big acreage? Basically, they've been on two crops and um, also having to use use GMO um, crops, probably because of using Roundup uh, and, you know, things like that. Uh, how do you approach those challenges? Right. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, um, areas where cover crops probably have had, you know, a lot, a lot more success. That seems to be a, a, a less intensive uh, crop rotation. Here in California, a lot of our vegetable growers, you know, they could be growing 40 different crops and, you know, in two different rotations throughout the year. It's a very complicated uh, a crop rotation. So working in these regenerative practices in and around that it can can be fairly complex, um, you know, not to mention minimizing disturbance. You know, when you've really been leaning on tillage pretty heavily for weed control and for you know seed bed prep and all of those kinds of things, uh, it, it's it's a lot more complicated. So you know, we tend to use you know different um, uh, tillage techniques there, minimizing the, the disturbance with strip tillage or vertical tillage or you know just just some cultivation that just disturbs the top maybe one or two inches. So that requires some special equipment, and uh, we do have a lot of equipment ideas on our website if you happen to be thinking about those. In the Midwest, the crop rotations are pretty simple. You know, you really are, you know, looking at an annual grain kind of a scenario um, or, you know, a simple corn bean type rotation, and they have worked out some pretty good, um, you know, combinations of uh, multi-species cover crops that work fairly well in that particular, um, you know, type of a setting. Terminating, you know, the cover crop oftentimes is done with a herbicide so that they can come in with a no-till drill and then just drill a bean crop, um, you know, on top of corn stubble. 
Um, they also have some interesting um, approaches. If you haven't been there, um, looking at um, seeding uh, clovers and other types of uh, multi-species cover um, in the rows of corn. Um, so when the corn is harvested, that really opens up the canopy then for this cover crop that just has you know gotten maybe a little bit of a start. Um, throughout the summer while that corn is thriving. And then when the canopy opens up, that cover crop just really comes on in a big way and is is really ready to cover that soil um, during the wintertime. Just different cropping systems uh, and so different approaches. Um, we the, the tools are there and it's really up to the grower to apply those tools in a way that makes sense for them um, in their particular system. Um, but ultimately, always working toward those five uh, soil health principles. And I do believe in the Midwest, it's a lot easier to run cattle on corn stubble in the wintertime. And if you do have a clover crop coming up, that gives the animal a little bit of residue along with some green cover coming through. And then any of the corn that gets missed or left behind, that's a really great way to to to, to run cattle in the wintertime. Um, I think we've We've forgotten how to do that. Used Before, to be done quite a bit. I'm, I'm sure you're right. Unfortunately, they pulled out so many fences. It'd been a lot easier if they left fences in. But yeah, uh, when we started at one point, there was robots saying, "Go fence row to fence row," and then people are saying, "Wait a minute, what's a fence row?" Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have any fence rows, and right. um, they need to put them back in now. Some are, I think, you know, going to doing the hot wires and so forth, and and moving them out. So. So really, you know, again, you could almost look anywhere in the world where there's land that could be producing food. And like we said, everything from rangeland to your backyard and right. kind of parachute in there and say, look, this can we can do a better you can do a better job. So when you start that with somebody, if you're going somewhere anywhere that's, that's listening, there's somebody listening right now. They're either growing something themselves or buying food that's been produced in a certain way. It could happen almost anywhere. But if you're going in there, one of the first things is you have to say it can be done. But then you got to answer why. I mean, um, when you run into that, when somebody said, well, okay, that's interesting. Um, but why should I do it? What do you say? Well, there's a, a variety of different answers to that. And I believe it really is important that you know who you're who you're talking with. Um you know, if it's a grower, growers tend to be motivated primarily by economic factors. And so, you know, the answer there would be, I would do this because it's going to reduce your input costs per acre. Um, you know, once once you're able to transition into a regenerative system, <clears throat> it's a lot less input costs because the biology and the and, and the diversity is providing a lot of uh, preventative type medicine, let's say, um, in that particular scenario. And so, you know, less input is required. Um, if you do have adequate coverage, you know, there's a lot less herbicide that's necessarily needed in those scenarios. Um, if you've got excellent biological diversity, you know, a lot less pesticide, you know, would need to be applied, which means you not having to buy as much input. Um, if you are able to get that biological engine in your soil revved up and rolling, it can fix nitrogen for you. Um, and so you don't necessarily need to apply as much exot and outside nitrogen. You don't have to apply or buy as much nitrogen fertilizer because 
because the biology is providing that for you by increasing um, nitrogen fixation and also improving the nutrient cycling in that soil. So the biology is feeding your crop. So that tends to be a good motivator to a lot of growers, not to mention for those in the West where water is always short. You know, they say that uh, whiskey's for drinking and water is for fighting over. That is really the case in, in the West in particular. Water resources are going to continue to be short. Uh, we can't continue to pump out of our, our you know, groundwater the way that we have. Um, so if you can't pump groundwater and you don't have surface water, you know, you're going to have to change the way in which, you know, you, you farm. You may have to change your cropping systems. Um, you may have to change your farming locations. So a lot of that is is going to be relevant, um, you know, as we farm into the next, you know, couple of decades. I think it's going to be really, really critical. And what most people don't recognize is as you improve your soil health, as you pull down more carbon and you put more carbon in the soil, you improve your water holding capacity, which means your soil is going to hold more water and make that more plant available um, over a longer period of time, which means fewer irrigations. Fewer irrigations in today's world means less PG&E expense. Um, you don't have to apply as much water because you're being much more water efficient. Not to mention the water that you do get, you know, from natural rainfall is able to um, percolate, is actually able to get into the soil, which isn't the case in heavy tillage scenarios because of the capping that takes place as natural rainfall hits bare soil. It caps and that water tends to run off, taking with it anything that happens to be on that soil surface, including soil. Um, itself. So that's why we tend to have, you know, so much uh, material in the runoff water and sedimentation in our water in our waterways, uh, because we're not protecting our soil um, from erosion and that type of thing. So you can hit growers with those two areas in particular. Regenerative agriculture improves your water use efficiency, your water infiltration, and it also improves your bottom line once the system is is rolling. It's not going to necessarily happen in your first year. You got to give it a couple of years to, to really start to, to, to rev up. Well, we're having extreme situations in California when I mean, we look at the, the groundwater and so forth. And, and we have had plenty of droughts and some forecasts there'll be more droughts ahead. But one of the things that you're alluding to here that I think is often missed is that even if you're back in some of that country that gets 40 inches of rain a year, less and less it's hap it's happening when it's handy. You know, there is more runoff and they need to have retention as well because those that rain and rainfall hasn't changed that much. But when it comes, it's coming in torrents that they can't really absorb or use. And then you have longer dry spells. And it's been happening for the last four or five years across the Midwest, different areas. They just absolutely. want the rain when they wanted it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the rain volume, the amount of water that's coming down. And, you know, is your soil ready to capture that? Is it a sponge, you know, or is it capped and is all of that water running off? So if you do get 40 inches, how much of that rain did you actually incorporate? Did that actually get infiltrate into your soil profile? 
um, the highly efficient farms that really have, uh, you know, great porosity, great soil tilt, great water infiltration, will be able to capture, you know, 10, 12 inches in an hour. That's a lot of water in one hour. Yeah. Uh, so if you have that kind of porosity in your soil, it, you do have the potential to capture that much um, and hold it in your soil as well. So that's the challenge is, is really getting growers to be thinking about their soil as a, a potential water sponge and, you know, uh, a source of nutrition um, for, their, for their plants, not just something to hold their plants up. <laughs> while they come along and they deliver everything that, uh, you know, that, that particular crop might need. So it's a different mindset. So um, I often, I often say, you know, the transition for the soil is very much the same as the transition for the grower, because the mind has to shift as well as the soil. And, and if it can happen simultaneously, great. Uh, but um, it more often happens when the grower shifts first, and then we start to see the shift in the soil. Um, we never see it where the soil shifts, and then because <laughs> that just doesn't happen. So we do need to see this paradigm shift in the way we think about farming. Um, you know, at at the farmer level first, and then we can start to see some improvements in in the soil. Well, there's a lot of people that uh, are involved in agriculture that have a range of opinions as whether or not they're too worried about climate change or not. But more and more people say, well, I don't know what it is, but this climate thing is things are different and it's not as good as it used to be. So they're more and more accepting. And even the skeptics, they may not think they're ready to be motivated by the potential impact on the climate like carbon sequestration. But there's incentives now, too. There's there's uh, state programs and there's all sorts of, th of things that are going on around the world to um, to give incentives. So in a way, um, that also gets into the potentially on the income side is that um, doing move in this direction, whether or not you're a total believer or not, uh, might actually directly impact if you get involved in some of these programs or you're able to get credits that are marketable, too. Absolutely. There are programs there that basically remove the risk uh, from uh, adopting some of these practices. So if, you know, you'd like to try a multi-species cover crop, um, there are incentive programs out there to help you uh, do that. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has a healthy soil program where they do provide growers with um, incentives for specific practices like multi-species covers, like compost applications, um, um, uh, grazing practices, uh, a whole host of you know practices that can really help build soil, and and they take the risk out by providing an incentive for you to implement that particular practice, but over a three-year period. And I think that's really wise to contract growers for that three-year period because that first year you're experimenting and things could go wrong. And then you learn quite a bit from that year one and you can apply that in year two and year two, it goes so much better. And by year three, you have a level of comfort with that particular production practice that you're probably either, you know, you've completely bought in at this stage and you're going to do that practice from then on, whether you've got the incentive or not. Or you may have realized that there is truly an economic benefit to that particular practice. And so you're going to invest in that, um, you know, just as part of your normal farm operation. So that's the logic behind the three-year contracts on 
projects like the Healthy Soil Program. Uh, we also have a federal program called uh, um, EQIP, which is the Environmental Quality Incentive Program. That program is available through your local NRCS office, but does require a cost share. So growers have to have some, they have to invest in, in those practices. Basically the same practice, but CDFA tends to pay for the incentive um, up front without a match. Um, and the NRCS EQIP does require a match. So uh, two different ways to be funded, but, uh, um, you know, and it really is up to each grower as to, you know, what they feel comfortable doing. Well, and I would imagine you do this sort of thing and you're improving, uh, improving the soil and you're improving the farm returns and so forth. Your land gets worth more, too. I mean, if you've got a good program going and you do have to sell the farm someday or, you know, it's you you've made the property more valuable from having these processes in place. And one other thing, and I don't know how small this is, but I run into people that say, well, I wasn't so sure about all of this, but I've, I've done it for various reasons. I'm involved, not the least of which is my kids or my grandkids are giving me a hard time saying, Grandpa, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing with a farm? And people that have come back to farm that have gone off and probably gone to Chico State and, and had some classes from you are coming back again and saying, look, we got to do the right thing, folks. This, mm -hmm. this is time for us to get with it. So you end up having that generational pressure on top of the environmental pressures and on top of the bottom line pressures. And I would guess, Cindy, that bankers are starting to come to some of your seminars and presentations and going online. And when if you still, like most farmers, have to go in and get an operating loan, I would guess there's more and more bankers that are asking the tough questions and saying, just what exactly you're doing? Are you heading this direction or not? Because I don't understand why you wouldn't. Right, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm certain they are, because as you know, unfortunately, the banks, you know, tend to get more heavily involved um, in these farming operations and these farming because of the, you know, the debt that happens to be there. And I will tell you that that uh, regenerative agriculture tends to uh, be a paradigm that growers um, look to, you know, in financial distress. Uh, they're looking for, you know, ways in which to kind of work their way out of debt. Um, and many of you probably have heard that story by Gabe Brown. If you haven't, you need to read his book on um, on dirt to soil. Yeah, it's a great book that talks about exactly that. He was in pretty heavy debt because of, you know, the 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 constant. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the treadmill that he was on in, in the conventional commodity type market and just wasn't um, able to to make ends meet. And his farm, his soil was just not very resilient. Um, and he went through a lot of climate you know, issues, hail, and he had some very severe storm events that came through and, and he had serious crop losses. And because his soil wasn't resilient, it wouldn't sustain that crop throughout all of those severe weather changes. So he looked at regenerative agriculture as an, a way out of debt and a way out of that, you know, that poor soil structure that just wasn't supporting, you know, crop production and uh, was able to work out of that over time. And now he is a just a success story and really an, an icon, um, poster child, a poster farmer for the regenerative movement um, and does a really nice job articulating that exact story. 
Well, now let's take another angle on the story, and that is that that's coming out of these farms or gardens, urban farms, large range operations, any place that's applying regenerative. Uh, down the chain, we're going to end up having customers that are going to be increasingly saying, I want to purchase products. I want to be able to feature products at my supermarket or at my restaurant that have been right. grown regeneratively. And that's that's taking it, taking it to a whole nother stage. And I think that uh, everything we've talked about up to now, Cindy, it makes perfect sense to me, but I've heard it many times now and I'm, I'm becoming, I'm almost to the point that I think I could repeat it to other people, but, <laughs> but when, but, you know, thinking about this being a tag that accompanies the food into the supermarket or into a, uh, a restaurant that wants to start identifying whether the, the food has been produced in a regenerative fashion that's where you also run into some people that are worried that you might take something away from organic or some mm -hmm. or grass fed or some of the other description systems. So it, it seems you have this kind of confluence of of these languages now kind of coming together. And and there's the some people will feel threatened by the conversation of regenerative. I mean, where does regenerative fit into some of these other descriptions of production systems, such as particularly, I suppose, uh, organic? Right. That is a, a big a, a big question today. It's a big debate. There's a, a lot of different opinions on that. Um, I, I do see regenerative being um, one of, you know, that that paradigm, that that approach that can be applied to all management strategies, organic and conventional. The soil health principles, you know, need to be applied um, across the board in, in every way, shape and form. We, we, we take the adage that, that, you know, this regenerative approach is really a natural, it's, it's a nature-based approach or a solution to climate change. So if that's the case, all of agriculture, needs to be adopting these practices and make it norm, make it the norm, make it the normal practice because we become then the solution to climate rather than a contributor to it. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a panacea and there's big debate as to how much carbon we can actually store, you know, through these farming practices. A lot of that does need to be, um, you know, better delineated and better studied um, but by and large, these practices apply no matter what management strategy you're talking about. Um, organic can benefit from the regenerative farming practice, and we've got data to support that. Um, a, a lot of organic farms do embrace um, a lot of, of tillage, and that in and of itself makes that uh, a non-regenerative system that is not regenerating itself and you can tell just by walking on the on the place what's regenerative and what isn't um, so we would love to see all of um, organic um, embrace regenerative so that when you become organically certified you're also um, practicing regeneratively in in that particular paradigm so that to us is a actually <laughs> not a bad approach and uh, but can be broadly applied to all production systems regardless. We've got data on both ends of that spectrum. We've got systems that are conventional systems that we've applied regenerative practice to. And with time, we're seeing soil carbon accumulation. So we're really building that soil and building the biology in a way that's storing carbon. 
we've got organic systems where we've done this in organic orchards and organic vegetable you know systems um, um, organic row cropping systems where we apply these practices in that and we're able to enhance the biology and enhance the uh, soil carbon accumulation. So we think it applies in all of those paradigms. Wow. Now let's talk about getting the word out because uh, I appreciate to getting the word out on farm to table talk. And we've got people listening to this today that are learning from you. And I'm sure some of them will be back in touch with you. And, and in fact, Tim LaSalle had several um, that got in touch with him after he was on one of my podcasts. And I know some programs might have emerged from that. But let's let's talk about that. So tell us a little bit about the center and what you're trying to do, what you're accomplishing with the center. The, the, the center exists really to uh, um, enhance uh, education around this regenerative uh, paradigm. Uh, we we have several different programs currently that are really designed around a grower transition. So we're, we're there to support that transition into this climate smart and or regenerative uh, type farming paradigm. Um, our programs uh, for farmer transition include incentives and we have some incentives through a, a, an RCPP project, which is a, a resource conservation partnership project with the NRCS, with the um, California Association of RCDs. Um, and the idea is, is that we incentivize growers for using these different practices and we provide them with technical assistance uh, so that they can um, imagine their farm with more of these regenerative practices. So we provide that technical assistance and then we provide the incentive. So that is the RCPP. Um, we also have a USDA Climate Smart Commodity Grant where um, it, uh, it's going to reestablish a food hub for Climate Smart Ag um, here in the North State. And, and actually, the, uh, the sphere of influence is pretty significant. Uh, you know, we're not necessarily going to turn anybody away that wants to market product, you know, through this food hub. Um, and and to do it in a way that um, you know we hope will add additional value on farm uh, for growers. Um, we've got staff on board that will help growers aggregate their product and then make it available through the food hub for larger contracts through school districts. Um, you know, perhaps through hospitals. Um, you know, those kinds of places that would really love to have local, healthy, you know, food products that you know were were grown locally. Um, but uh, can't really access that because of the volume that they need and the way that the current food system is designed. So the Food Hub is uh, going to focus on aggregating product, um, working together with growers, incentivizing them with um, some incentive funds to go into these climate smart practices. And then we aggregate that product and then we market it you know, to these larger kinds of contracts. I'm hoping that that incentivizes growers also on the other end with a little bit of a price premium so that they can, uh, you know, um, enjoy that economically speaking. Um, we also have a technical assistance provider program where we train um, other individuals at, at the RCD, NRCS, um, yeah, UC Cooperative Extension. We have a variety of PCAs and CCAs that are also interested in, in going through this program. It takes about a year and, and when you're done, you can write plans for growers that uh, implement and um, integrate these climate smart practices onto their farms. 
So that's been very, very um, popular and uh, really over-enrolled. It's probably one of the only uh, training programs that are in existence today. So we're excited about that. And of course, we're also trying to fill the gap in the scientific literature. Uh, so we have a, a really big project now where we're doing side-by-sides of a regenerative system right next to a conventional system in the same cropping system, similar soil type. And we're tracking the flow of carbon in and out of that system, including the soil carbon changes and all the pools of carbon that um, are there um, in uh, in four different locations throughout California in some very popular cropping systems uh, so that we can uh, basically establish uh, the difference in uh, environmental um, and in economic um, outcomes uh, between those two systems. So wow. that's we're we're we've got a lot going on. There's there's a lot going on. So what if I'm a college student? Is there a courses the course that I could take that I could go in and kind of get in, uh, excited or maybe become a graduate assistant and help with these uh, projects or work on a master's degree that, that allows you to use these principles? Absolutely. We do have uh, an interdisciplinary master's program. It, it's a residential program. You do have to be on campus to do this one, but it's basically a master's in regenerative ag. Um, it's 30 units, and then uh, you do need to do a kind of thesis-ready type project, and we have several that we can you know, set students up with. So if you're interested in regenerative ag and soil health, uh, you know, it might be a program um, that you'd be interested in doing. We were also funded through the USDA to, to launch a minor in regenerative agriculture. So we're in the middle of that, working on developing that. Hopefully we can offer it in the 2025. And we have designs on a major and uh, an online master's as well. But we haven't been funded for that yet. So if any of your listeners are out there and want to invest in uh, the younger generation, the next generation of regenerators, uh, we would uh, love to have your help. Um, in in developing those uh, those kinds of, of degree programs that we think will be very helpful in recruiting you know more young minds into this area of regenerative agriculture. You know, it seems to me you might also have a partnership that with the business school because the area that you're talking about now is that how you take that story forward almost a, a merchandising role of uh, potential customers when you look coming out of the hub and forming. Uh, educating consumers or others that might uh, and working with the systems like the, you know, like you said, the schools and the hospitals and the institutions that could be utilizing product that takes that takes it to another step, too. So it's never ending, Cindy. You'll never get to retire. You're going to have to be doing this for another 50 years. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm hoping that, uh, yeah, we'll have so much interest in this that, you know, there'll be other centers that pop up and that, uh, you know, yeah, all hands on deck. We don't have uh, a, a lot of time, you know, to to to, to, uh, to think about this. It's time to kind of move ahead and, and get uh, as much of this uh, pushed into production agriculture as we can get. Yeah, well, don't feel the pressure because Earth is depending on you, let alone a lot of hungry people that could get hungry or with 8 billion that have to be <laughs> doing damage to the climate. So if people want more information on everything we've said, and I can't, I'm sure there must be something we didn't cover, but uh, I tried to cover all we could. But if, the, if they want more information, how to how do they find out? How do they dig in and say, I want to follow up on this? 
Absolutely. You can come to our website. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you just type in, uh, you know, CSU Chico Center for Regenerative Agriculture into your search engine, you'll come up with um, our website. And most of our programming is on the website, as well as, you know, ways to participate. So if you do want to, uh, if you're a grower and you want to participate in that food hub, reach out to us. There is an interest form on that food hub landing page and or just reach out to any one of us. Um, all, all of our contact information is located there. We'd love to be able to hook you up with our TAPs and uh, and with our food hub um, marketing staff. I think that they can uh, at least advise you into, you know, what uh, what what your thoughts are in terms of what you might want to be able to market through that particular food hub. We'd love to help you out. Well, and some of these listeners today, I'm sure there's some that are going to want to be following up. And I have and I think would also tell them to share this this podcast too. You covered a lot of ground, and so spread it around. Let others know that they can listen to this, and it'll be up on our website for a while. And it's evergreen. We end up finding that I've got podcasts on that uh, are in there that people continue to listen to some of their favorite ones and go back and find them. And they'll do a search in there for regenerative agriculture. And I'm sure as soon as we this gets out there, it'll be showing up in search engines and. And so we'll help get the word out. Uh, I, I love what you're doing. And, you know, really, really proud of the work that's taking place and excited about the future. And I'm, and I'm just delighted. It's been Dr. Cindy Daly, the uh, Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems at Chico State. And Cindy, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much for the invitation. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 